and welcome to another installment of Strange Occurrences from Horror 4H. I'm still trying to find the next terrible movie for a full episode, so in the meantime, hopefully you will enjoy the Strange Occurrences as much as I do. As usual, all music in this episode, save for the title, was written, performed, and allowed to be used free of charge by Kevin MacLeod. Also, big thanks to Brian, Josh, and Jackal for keeping Horror 4H running. We're just $1 a month short of this thing paying for itself on the hosting end of things. Without their contributions, only a few episodes would be available at any time. But because of their generosity, you can currently enjoy every episode of Horror 4H and Strange Occurrences free of charge at your leisure. If you want to help contribute to the show, head on over to Patreon, and it's patreon.com slash horror. 4H. And you can give anything from a dollar a month to whatever you're comfortable, and if you don't manage to give anything, not a problem. As long as you are enjoying the content, that's all I ask. Also, feel free to email me at horror4h at gmail.com. I'd love feedback from you, perhaps a suggestion of a particularly bad horror movie you'd love to hear me riff on, or any paranormal experiences of your own you'd like to hear me read. If it's the latter, feel free to include the story in the body of the email, and I will only change wording to make it more readable and clean it up, but will not change any of the details, so any names or places you give will be read as is. Uh, I, I also apologize, my voice might not be 100%, my throat and my stomach are both markedly improved, but uh, still leave desire for even more improvement. But, here we are. So, that's enough of that, on to the spoop. Reminder that Strange Occurrences is entirely fictional, and no events that take place in it are real. Any names, places, and events that resemble anyone in real life are completely coincidental and not linked to them at all. Today's episode contains missing persons, missing children, violence, suicide, and other disturbing imagery. If those are things you think you can't handle, then please find someone else to listen to. But for those of you who remain, sit back, have a hard time relaxing, and remember to close the closet door tightly. The Boogeyman. The name evokes countless images across cultures, of monsters, man-like creatures, and more. Of something that stalks children and hides in their closets and under their beds and behind the curtain. Maybe it's there in the shadows, just out of sight, or right outside your window if you dare open the blinds. That feeling you have that someone is watching you right now. Maybe that's him. Or maybe it's just a story, one we tell children to get them used to the concept of scary make-believe, or to help them learn to overcome fear, that the dark itself isn't a fear but what could be in it, or to teach them to come to us when they're afraid so that we can assuage their fear. Whatever the reason, the boogeyman is a fairly common thing for many children across the world, from the shadow people and the hat man to the even more terrifying Menanengal in the Philippines, to the tragic and horrific La Llorona in Central and South America. The Boogeyman takes on all shapes, sizes, sexes, and is always frightening and looming. But why bring up such a broad sweeping topic on this show? We here at Strange Occurrences are prone to speak on purely fictional and made up. We deal with facts and some opinions and theories, but never the blatantly false. Enter the Bradley family of Godwin, Illinois. Chase Bradley was a fairly average person. He was born in 1962 and by all accounts was an active child. He played every sport his parents would allow him to and excelled at most, but he adored football and played from as early as he was allowed through high school. His peers and coach would later state in interviews that had he not broken his leg in his senior year, he likely would have obtained a scholarship and done well in college football. Unfortunately, Chase and a few others celebrating a win of the school team one weekend did, as many do, drank too much and drove through the back roads around Godwin, a fairly small town of only 5,000 people. The accident could have been far worse. A railroad crossing had malfunctioned, and the lights weren't working, and in the dark, while drunk, 
going at excessive speeds on roads that were, were not well paved. The car narrowly avoided a train, but ended up hitting a tree and in a nearby ditch. The driver was killed on impact. The driver's girlfriend suffered a severe brain injury and would spend the rest of her life needing constant care. Chase's leg broke in multiple places, and his girlfriend at the time, Laura Houston, suffered from a several cracked ribs. Both would eventually make a full recovery, though. Friends and family say that after the accident, Chase had become depressed and despondent, but that didn't stop him from graduating later that year with a C-plus average. Laura also graduated with a B average. Neither went on to college. Chase fell into drinking more heavily, and spent a week in the hospital two years after the accident, after another accident this one involving his father's hunting rifle. Sources close to the family later said that they didn't believe Chase's account of the incident, that it had gone off accidentally, and thought that the teen had tried to take his own life. He left the hospital in better spirits than he had entered it, though, and reportedly quit drinking entirely. Laura fared better after the car accident and became much more involved in local charity work. She volunteered at one of the churches in the area and helped with food drive and other such events. The two had split up after the car accident, but after Chase's possible suicide attempt, they reconnected. They were married two years later when they were both 21. The marriage started off strong. Chase managed to get a job at a local factory that had recently opened up, and Laura worked for multiple businesses in the area and the church that she had been volunteering at, the First Lake Church of Christ. By all accounts, the pair made a loving and lovely couple. Chase had always been known to have a bit of a temper, but after he stopped drinking, his fits of anger had largely subsided, and he was known by his co-workers as loud, but friendly. Laura was described by her co-workers as a very kind and caring woman, and someone who was always willing to help, no matter what. In May of 1983, the pair announced they were pregnant, and on December 2nd of that year, their child, Alton David Bradley, was born. The pregnancy was reportedly a difficult one, with Laura having a few complications and needing to be on almost complete bed rest at the last month or so of the pregnancy. Alton was born underweight and not in good health, and had to be kept at the hospital for almost two full months after he was born, and Laura needed a blood transfusion after the birth and wasn't allowed to leave for two weeks afterwards. Friends of Chase said that during this time, he started drinking again. Not a lot, but just to deal with the stress of both possibilities of losing his wife and new child, and because of the building hospital bills. When both Laura and Alton were finally at home together, things seemed to improve for them all. Laura managed to return to work within the next year, which greatly helped their financial burdens, and both sets of their parents helped with childcare. However, this wouldn't last as Alton became ill over and over again throughout his very early childhood. Despite him taking bottles fairly well, he was deemed as having a failure to thrive. He suffered from colds and flus often, and by the time he was three, he was thought to have had at least one metabolic disorder, and was often anemic. The doctor bills began to pile up, and Laura was forced to stay at home more and more often to take care of their sick child. Because of this, Chase's drinking habit began to resurface, and he would be seen spending more and more time at a local bar before going home. These factors began to put a distinct strain on their marriage. By the time Alton was in kindergarten, he had begun to do better, and wasn't sick as often, but was very small for his age, and would become fatigued easily, and couldn't keep up with the other children. He did well in school, and his teachers said he was very bright, but he couldn't go outside and play with the other children at recess, nor after school, and socially, he suffered. By the time Alton was eight, Chase's drinking had become frequent and problematic, and had led to regular fights between him and Laura. They were divorced shortly before Alton's ninth birthday. The final event between the two that cemented the divorce was Chase had gone on a bender, and didn't come home two nights in a row on a weekend. Laura called his co-workers and friends, and none had seen him since that Friday night at the bar, and eventually she called the police, 
who found his car in a field but couldn't locate Chase. He was returned Sunday by the wife of another co-worker who told Laura he'd been with her the whole weekend. When he sobered up, he didn't deny the affair, nor the drinking. Laura quickly found an apartment and moved herself and Alton into it before the divorce could be finalized. Alton was said to have handled the entire ordeal in stride, siding with his mother, and was glad that he was living with her. Chase swore off drinking and fought the divorce for months before it was finalized in March of 1993. April of that year was the first time that Alton mentioned feeling unsafe in his room at the apartment. They were on the first floor of an older apartment building in Godwin, his bedroom against the outside wall with a westward-facing window. Friends of Laura later said they remember her talking about how Alton wasn't sleeping well because of, quote, noises outside the window, unquote. She originally believed it was simply an animal or her child's imagination. Especially after such a rough divorce, she thought Alton's imagination was running away with him and causing problems with his sleep, or that his physical issues were having new symptoms, and she did eventually take him to the doctor who suggested a child psychologist. The nearest one was an hour and a half away, and she scheduled an appointment, but the earliest they could see Alton was two months from then. Within a few more days of this, Alton complained about more noises outside his window, ranging from whispering to scratching. On April 8, 1993, Laura was jolted awake from her sleeping by Alton screaming. She rushed into his room to find him on the floor trying to hide under his bed with his window wide open. She looked but saw nothing outside out of the ordinary. When questioned, Alton said the boogeyman had tried to take him. Laura called the police, who checked the window and around it, finding no footprints or any evidence of anything being disturbed. Because of Chase's previous problems with drinking and the bitterness of the divorce, they paid him a visit, but found him to be seemingly just woken up from them and noted his car was cold as if it hadn't been running for hours. They also noted there was no alcohol in his breath, and he cooperated and allowed them inside, where they said there were no signs of his drinking, no empty bottles or cans. He seemed genuinely concerned about his son and ex-wife as well, so he wasn't considered a suspect. He met Laura the next day and helped her install a new lock on Alton's bedroom window that he couldn't reach without standing on something and the window itself was noted to be quite heavy and hard to open from the inside and almost impossible to open from the outside. Alton told his parents and the police that the boogeyman was several feet tall, bigger than his dad, who was six foot two, and that it moved, quote, real fast, end quote. This is notable because Chase walked with a noticeable limp after the car accident and couldn't run with any real speed. Alton also said the boogeyman had, quote, red eyes and sharp teeth and really long fingers, end quote. Though these were thought at the time to be the embellishments of a frightened child. The next few days passed without incident, but on April 15th, Alton woke his mother again. This time, however, it wasn't with screaming. He nudged her awake while sobbing softly and said that the boogeyman was back and was talking to him through the window, and that it said it was going to hurt her for keeping him out. The police were called again and responded, with Alton saying the boogeyman's voice was very deep and, quote, echoey, end quote. At this point, Laura began to have Alton sleep in her room, which seemed to help alleviate his fears somewhat. During this time, communication between Laura and Chase picked up. Their friends would later say that they didn't think the two would reconcile, but that they began to be more amicable towards each other, as they were both worried for their son. Police had also begun to patrol near the apartment building once or twice in a night, in an effort to deter anyone who may be bothering Laura and Alton, though reports from that time showed that they simply believed the child had been having nightmares. These reports were proven wrong on April 19th, sadly. At 1 a.m. on April 19th, 1993, the police responded to a call from the upstairs neighbor of Laura, 
a Mr. Homer Jensen, a 74-year-old retiree. Homer called them after hearing a massive crash both from below his apartment and the frantic screams of both Alton and Laura. He and other neighbors rushed to the apartment and tried to enter but found the door locked. Before police arrived, Alton opened the door and Homer and a few other neighbors entered the apartment while Alton stayed in the hallway with different neighbors. They said in the official reports that they saw the window in his bedroom broken, nearly completely torn off the wall, and blood before they exited the apartment and waited for the police to arrive. The police got there shortly after the call, and once they surveyed the scene, a car was sent immediately to Chase's house. Again, his car was found cold and he was apparently woken by the officers from a slumber and came to collect his son while they investigated. Alton's bedroom window had been shattered from the outside, and the window itself was pushed into the room, barely hanging onto the wall. There were scratch marks on the inside, leading to the window itself, some bloody, along with specks of blood among the broken glass on the floor, and two fingernails, Laura's, as well. All the evidence at the scene led investigators to the conclusion that someone had, using in the words of the lead investigator, quote, immense strength, end quote, busted the window open. Alton's recounting of the event was that he had awoken and heard the boogeyman's voice from outside his window, and he had called for his mother. Laura entered the room and heard the voice as well, and when she opened the blinds, the boogeyman had busted through the window and pulled her out and had, quote, ran off with mommy, end quote. Police, while not fully believing the boy's account, couldn't argue with how the scene looked. All the details matched his telling of events. Other than a short trail of her blood leading from the window for a few feet, there were no other trails outside the window for police to follow. No vehicle tracks were found in the large open field from the apartment building to the nearby woods, which were also searched. Other than evidence inside the room and the short blood trail, there was nothing for police to follow or look for. Eventually, Alton was released to Laura's parents, initially. Days went by and Chase fully cooperated with police and was quickly ruled out as a suspect and allowed to take Alton back to his house. If the story ended here, you could perhaps chalk this up to some bizarre instance of stalker and kidnapper. But sadly, it doesn't end here. Alton never got to his appointment with the child psychologist. Chase's friends and parents said that on April 22nd, that Chase had told them the night before, in his old room at Chase's house, which had no outside windows, that Alton had told his father the boogeyman's voice came from his closet and had said he would get Alton and his daddy. Chase said that he investigated the closet and found nothing out of the ordinary and believed his son was traumatized by the abduction of his mother and was hearing things. No one knows for sure what happened, as the next day was a Friday and Chase did not show up for work. Alton did not show up for school. Neither the factory nor the school thought this was odd, as after a traumatic event, time spent away from work and school with each other wasn't out of the ordinary. The next day, though, no one had heard from Chase or Alton, and that Sunday... Chase's parents were worried, as they still hadn't heard from their son or grandson, and went to his house. They had a spare key and entered, and began to search the house, but upon entering Alton's room, they exited quickly, and called the police who showed up. Their reports state that the room was in a state of disarray, with the bed being overturned and most of Alton's belongings strewn about indicating a struggle. The closet doors were broken off the hinges, apparently from the inside. Specks of blood dotted the room later tested and shown to be both Alton's and Chase's. Some skin was also found and later tested to be shown from Chase. There were bloody scratch marks on the floor from under where the bed had been into the closet, along with a fingernail consistent with Alton's size. 
the only other evidence that was entered into the record was a drawing, presumably made by Alton, of his bedroom. A massive shadowy figure in the closet with red eyes, sharp teeth, and long fingers, with Alton drawing himself under his bed hiding and crying. No other trace of Chase, Laura, or Alton Bradley has ever been found, and the case remains open to this day.